Hey, my name is Eric McCoy, and welcome back to Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Hey, please check out my other podcast, also High Wall Clean, and uh, and also our radio show, LA Talk Radio. What were you thinking? You know, next week we're going to be meeting with Tommy Chong, and I felt we could incorporate recovery in today, but not abstinence. But instead, I wanted to look at harm reduction. And as always, I am here with Lona Curie. Lona? Okay, well, I guess we don't have Lona, but, uh, you know, as we explored our drug laws and how they ultimately violate our Bill of Rights in the Constitution, I want to explore the more controversial side of recovery. And, or is it even recovery? What is recovery? You know, if you refer to SAMHSA's website, and of course, SAMHSA's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Organization, again, SAMHSA, is an agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Their mission is to reduce the impact of substance abuse and mental illness on America's communities. You know, they say recovery is a process of change through which people improve their health and wellness. They live self-directed lives, and they strive to reach their full potential. Now, they define four major dimensions that support a life in recovery. Health, so overcoming or managing one's disease, as well as living in a physically and emotionally healthy way. Home, a stable and safe place to live. A purpose, meaningful daily activities such as a job, school, volunteerism, family caretaking, or creative endeavors, and the independence, income, and resources to participate in society and community, so relationships and social networks that provide support, friendship, love, and hope. Does harm reduction fit within that? Now, harm reduction has been extremely controversial. And of course, I remember back in the late 90s and into 2000 and 2001, it wasn't really a thing. There was methadone, but as a meth abuser, we didn't have alternatives. Harm reduction is a set of principal strategies and their ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences that are associated with drug use. Harm reduction is also a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. Now I want to propose a question and debate for people to think about. So if our federal government and state government are concerned about our health, why does nobody fight to make alcohol illegal? Now, again, despite that we already tried that, it actually didn't work. But everybody says that drugs cause violence, murder, crimes, etc. So does alcohol? I want to mention something real quick. So robbery, roughly 15% have been linked to alcohol use. Sexual assault, an estimated 37% of sexual assaults and rapes are committed by offenders who were under the influence of alcohol. 
aggravated assault. About 27% of aggravated assaults are committed by individuals who have used alcohol. Aggravated assault basically means causing serious injuries, such as bodily harm. Um, Intimate partner violence, an estimated two-thirds of victims that are suffering from, from violence by a current or a former spouse or partner report that a perpetrator had been drinking compared to less than one-third of stranger victimizations. Child abuse. So research studies have shown a link between parents who abuse alcohol and the risk of child neglect and abuse. Roughly four in 10 child abusers have admitted to being under the influence of alcohol during the time of the offense. Homicide. Alcohol is involved in more homicides across the United States compared to other substances like heroin or cocaine. In fact, about 40% of convicted murderers had used alcohol before or during the crime. So interesting when you think about it. Why then is alcohol not scheduled with the other drugs? Now, on average, again, roughly 40% of inmates who are incarcerated for violent offenses were under the influence of alcohol during the time of their crime. And many of these criminals had an estimated blood alcohol content, or BAC, level of more than three times the legal limit at the time of their arrest. Now, I want to mention something before we move on to talk about harm reduction. Why is there nothing spoken about with alcohol in Congress? Now, it should be no surprise that the alcohol industry has long been a political player, given that since the birth of the country, alcohol has been a significant source of revenue for both the federal government as well as the state governments. Moreover, since the end of Prohibition in 1933, the U.S. Constitution has granted the states the primary power to regulate the sale and the distribution of alcohol. The involvement of the alcohol industry in politics, then, has largely been an effort to avoid excessive taxation and see regulatory favor bestowed on one part of the industry or another. Now, it's also true that for decades, and particularly since the creation and the implementation of a three-tier system of alcohol regulation following the repeal of prohibition, the political involvement of the alcohol industry can be broken down and viewed from the perspective of each tier. You have producer, you have wholesaler, and you have the retailer then further examined through the lens of type of alcohol producer. So you have winery, the brewer, and the distiller. Now, any effort like this one to measure the involvement of the alcohol industry in domestic politics, you got to take a bird's eye view of the matter. And that view inevitably involves money, time, and context. So let me show you some numbers and can easily see why our governors, our senators, and presidents 
need to not speak poorly about alcohol. Take a look at this. So as you can see, the state level campaign contributions by the industry sector. So total contributions, 2018, 2020, the wholesalers, $40,645,766. And then you have the wineries, distillers, brewers, retailers. As you can see in this one, Texas, state-based wholesaler campaign contributions by state, 2020, $3,415,306. And this sort of outlines the different states by the wholesaler campaign contributions. This here shows the, again, the top 20 recipients of state-based wholesaler contributions. Greg Abbott from Texas, $1,415,172. And it kind of goes down and sort of gives you the list of, again, the top 20 recipients. Top 20 recipients of state-based brewer contributions. And of course, I'm in California. There's Gavin Newsom, $52,800. Top 20 recipients of state-based winery distiller contributions. Again, here's our governor, Gavin Newsom, $199,432. And again, goes down the top 20 recipients. Here's a list of the top 20 recipients of state-based retailer contributions. Andrew Cuomo at the top, New York, he was the governor, 82,000. I believe he stepped down. And then here you have federal campaign contributions. And here you have the 2020 presidential campaign contributions by sector. Wholesalers, of course, Trump received the highest amount. And Biden actually won for wine and spirits, brewers and retailers. And here's the federal campaign contributions by the political party. And with wholesalers, the highest for Republicans and also brewers was the highest for Republicans with wine and spirit producers and retailers for the Democrats. So why do I mention this? Well, the irony behind what we talked about last week in regards to raising minimum wage could partially be resolved by doing something by Congress, which none of them will do because they're being paid off, raise taxes on alcohol. So in 2010, for example, alcohol taxes collected by state and federal governments totaled $25.4 billion. Now, historically, alcohol taxes provided close to 40% of federal revenues. Now they account for only a half of 1%. And this is a large part to raise taxes to keep up with inflation. This is a huge reason alcohol companies pump money into government policies. Because if taxes go up, drinking goes down. So how would raising taxes boost the economy and allow for an increase in minimum wage, possibly? So according to a recent study, more than 70% of the costs that are associated with excessive drinking come from productivity losses. So because a substantial number of U.S. workers are under the influence of alcohol on any given day, 
An alcohol tax increase could reduce, again, excessive drinking in the workplace. So this would increase productivity, it would reduce absenteeism, and it would increase work quality. So these improvements can also reduce employer health insurance costs, thereby increasing business profitability. So when economists have modeled the effects of these taxes across the entire economy, they found that alcohol taxes actually lead to a net increase in jobs. So alcohol taxes shift revenues that are previously gained through the sale of alcohol to other sectors of the economy through government spending of the increased tax revenues. Now, there's always a separation between alcohol and drugs. So if I ask someone if they would consider legalizing drugs, you wouldn't really hear, well, we have a legalized drug, alcohol. You know, when I teach students and clients, they usually separate the two and also are uneducated that alcohol is the most dangerous drug out there. Now, once again, we also have another strong separation between policies that have seriously harmed people over the years. So I want to return really quick to harm reduction. So the central goal of alcohol policy is to reduce the harm to the individual and society, while drug policy is to punish and increase harm to individuals and society. So a recent proposal being pushed are safe houses for IV drug users to come and use without fear of getting arrested, getting clean needles, and having professionals there to help them if they overdose. Now, it's funny. We had a message on our last video we did on the drug war who asked why we just put out one senator and we should look at both sides and one network, speaking, of course, of Ted Cruz and Fox, and making this political shouldn't be the focus, but instead saving lives. That person obviously didn't watch the entire thing since we had Biden's horrible policy and even applauded the Republican fighting against the racist nature of our drug policy. The sad part, this is political. And so much stigma comes from policies. You know, we can sit here all day long and come up with solutions to help save lives. But if it's illegal, we will probably hit a roadblock. Now, I have lots of ideas that I can come up with that can help the situation in this free country that we live in. But freedom to do what I feel is best is based on what we are told freedom means by our policymakers. Now, I'm told what I can put in my body and what I can't. I'm allowed to drink alcohol, which kills more people every year than all illicit drugs combined. You know, there was an Australian study that found that 65% of fatal workplace injuries were by people who had a BAC or blood alcohol content of 0.05 or higher. And there was another 16% that had measurable 
alcohol in their blood. So too, drinking too much alcohol will kill you. Well, I'll tell you the joke on weed is that the only lethal dose is like two tons falling on you. <laughs> so I want to talk real quick about injection sites. And this is a very interesting concept and has the ability to save lives. But I want to return to politics because, again, this is where this all comes from. Do they care about saving lives? California almost passed this legislation a few years ago, but was shot down by then Governor Brown. Other states have looked at this. And I want to show a quick video by a Republican in Colorado. It seems that you're suggesting that supervised injection sites will cause more drug use. Do you believe that to be true? I do. Why do you believe that? Well, it's enabling it. So you're actually giving them a free place to come in and shoot up. Okay, so it's enabling and it gives them just a free place to shoot up. True. But that isn't what matters since they're going to do it anyways. You know, the thing that legislatures are is people who have no experience or idea what they're talking about. And it's going to happen anyways. So here's a former, here is our former vice president refusing to help spread the disease. Injection sites do provide clean needles. Do politics care or do politicians care? Let's take a look. I don't believe that effective anti-drug policy involves handing out paraphernalia to drug users by government officials. I reject that. So they don't want to help stop the spread of HIV. They don't think that that's something that the government should do. Do we not advocate for lives? Our politicians determine who lives and who dies. Take a look at this video. Explain why. I, I, I understand in Ohio, uh, Governor Kasich has uh, allowed every county, every live squad to figure out on their own basis whether or not their uh, first responders should carry Narcan, which they administer to uh, people who have OD'd. Why don't you want your deputies to have any? It's pretty simple. We're, uh, we're dispatched about the same time the live squad and fire people are. Uh, I feel it's dangerous when my uh, law enforcement people get there. Uh, we're down on our knees. We're administering the spray into the, the nose. Uh, these people don't want us there. They're trying to hide their drugs before they get before we get there. Then when they come, they come to, they come out of their high. Uh, they're very angry. They wonder what we're doing in their house, what we're doing here, get out of their house. A lot of times they get into the life squad. We have to have a police officer ride with them. It's dangerous for the officer. Uh, so we don't administer Narcan and nor will I, period. So apparently the sheriff feels that the police are in danger, but the paramedics are okay. I'm not really getting this. So again, they determine who lives and who dies. So here's an injection site with someone that is going into overdose. Take a look. It's like a doctor's office meets Williams-Sonoma. I mean, it's like nice in here. <laughs> Thank you. People who inject drugs in Toronto are really worried about overdose. They're using a loan in their home. What if they overdose? So they're gonna use this service too. 
The city opened this facility following the success of a pop-up safe injection site run by volunteers in this Toronto park. In this tent here, people are allowed to, to smoke drugs, and in the other tent here, people are injecting drugs. Heroin. M heroin, fentanyl. Right now, please. Oh, I'm needed, sorry. Go ahead. In the tent? Yes. It sounds like there's overdose happening right now in progress inside the tent, and that's exactly why they have these tents. We're not going to touch you. Can you take some deep breaths? So the man and the woman who just ran off apparently are possibly going to die. You know, most people that are being pulled out of overdose are going to be a bit out of it. And rarely do these people actually get violent. So the sheriff, in a sense, is basically just saying, you know what, these are drug addicts. We don't care about them. I don't want my police officers to be in danger. So we're just going to let them die. And it's up to the paramedics. Maybe they help them or not. Well, what if you had an injection site? What if you had a place where people actually cared about saving their lives? I mean, obviously the sheriff doesn't, but maybe we could put these injection sites there so people can go, they can safely do it. And the premise behind these safe houses or injection sites are that when the person decides that, you know what, maybe I'm going to uh, change, maybe I want help, you got a moment, you only got a little bit of time and you're right there and you can direct them, you can help them. We got a place, let's do it. It's one of the benefits that I see of these places. We give them clean needles so we're not spreading disease. We give them a safe place to go. If they go into overdose, we're there to help them. Last thing I want to show you real quick is, again, is this politics? Is this about politics? Do politicians get to decide who lives and who dies? Take a look at this. Um, I want to talk about the politics of it. So you floated the idea of recall elections against Democrats who support this idea. Similarly, there were successful recalls of Democrats who supported gun control legislation in 2013. If you're talking recalls after the fact, does that mean that you know that you can't stop this at the legislature? You know, I'm, it's, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to stop it. So that's just one of the tools that we have at, at our disposal to stop it. And I think that anyone who actually pushes legalized heroin injection sites, um, I think is way out of touch with the voters of Colorado. Uh, yesterday, Republican Senator Kevin Priola of Henderson told me he's going to be a co-sponsor on this legislation. Will you run a recall against your fellow Republican? I don't know at this time, probably not. So this guy is basically going to do whatever he can to make sure that people don't survive. And the real politics behind this is that he is going to push for recalls of all the Democrats that are pushing for this. But there's a Republican that is on, on, on board who's willing to sign on this. But we're not going to recall him because he's a Republican. Interesting, huh? So I wanted to just kind of throw this out here. Obviously, I'm alone by myself working to do this video. Lona doesn't care. I ah, just kidding, Lona. Um, but I wanted to throw this out here because, again, this is sort of what I did have planned today to talk about. And we need to find things that are going to work. We need to find places that can help us. We need to pull people out of these hold-up places under bridges to get them out here because then maybe we can talk to them. You're never going to talk to them without that. 
So if you open up a place, people are willing to go. Canada's done this stuff. They found some benefits to it. Is it going to save everybody? No. But you do have people maybe that says, you know what? Hey, I want to change. I want to do something different. And then again, you got a professional there. You know, the sheriff in that town obviously won't save lives. So maybe we need to throw the safe house there for people that are willing to save lives. So again, I want to thank everybody for tuning into this episode of Walk a Mile in My Shoes. I'm hoping you're working to walk a mile in my shoes. And I'm sorry we keep going back to politics, but this is political. This is all politics. We can't do things unless we get the approval to do certain things. You know, we can say, sit here and say, say all day long, these people should just go to rehab. You should go to rehab. A lot of them aren't willing to because a lot of them are scared and a lot of them don't know exactly what to do. A lot of them don't believe that they can do this. So are these the people we should just say, yeah, you know what, if they don't want to do it, let them die. And that's what they're saying. That's what a lot of these politicians are saying. They don't want to do this stuff. Fuck them. Let them die. Thanks for tuning in. And we will see you soon again. I got Tommy Chong coming on for our next episode. Thanks for tuning in.